Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to EarthSync on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. So what do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, this month on ArtsLink, it's going to be a feast of strategy and wargaming as I speak to senior curator Rory Corey of the Military Museums about the upcoming Museum Con. And Storybook Theatre has a Tony Award-winning play, Peter and the Starcatcher. It's a prequel to Peter Pan. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Mallet from Storybook Theatre. So welcome, Simon. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. And so how long have you been part of the theatre scene in Calgary? Well, uh, I started uh, the company Downstage back in uh, 2004, uh, and I've been fortunate to direct uh, many shows uh, for them, as well as uh, Vertigo Theatre, Theatre Calgary, Storybook Theatre, uh, Lunchbox Theatre, and a bunch of others. So it's it's nearly 20 years now that I've been uh, directing uh, shows for in the Calgary Theatre scene. And how often do you get to be part of a Storybook Theatre uh, production? This is the third show for that I've directed for Storybook since 2017. So I did uh, Susicol the Musical in 2017, and then I did Matilda the Musical just before the pandemic hit in 2020, and now this is my first time back since uh, since the pandemic. So I'm, I'm really excited to be part of Storybook again. Okay, and tell me about the play. It's called Peter and the Starcatcher. Yeah, so Peter and the Starcatcher is is sort of an unofficial prequel to Peter Pan, if you will. So it's 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 a kind of an origin story, um, which have become really popular in you know in like the Marvel uh, universe, for example. But um, it's it's how Peter got his name. It's how uh, Captain Hook became Captain Hook. It's how Tinkerbell was uh, created. Um, you know, it's sort of all of the. Um, it's all of the characters before uh, we know them in the story of Peter and Wendy, Peter Pan, uh, and the like. But um, so that's kind of the the story. It's a, but it's also kind of its own amazing adventure about uh, people coming of age and and sort of the the pains and perils and challenges of growing up and taking on new responsibility. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of a lovely story, but it, it's also very very funny. So it's it's a show that uh, ran on Broadway in New York for many years, uh, quite a few years ago. Um, and and has something for really something for everyone. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. Okay, and who are the cast members for this play? So we have a cast of, of fifteen, uh, and they range anywhere from um, uh, I think our youngest is uh, is fifteen, uh, right up to um, you know folks in in my age in their forties, uh, and uh, yeah, and and some folks who have have done. A number of shows for uh, for Storybook before a number of folks who have done shows for other professional companies in town, uh, and then we also have some folks who are you know really sort of um, just at the the initial stages of their career and are about to go off to university to study theater and, and are, are bound to be doing great things in the future as well. So it's it's a really exciting, really diverse cast, um, and they're but they're all very talented. And what about the crew members? Yeah, so we have a our, our design team on this show is is really exciting as well because um, we have designers uh, from Toronto and Vancouver, um, as well as a, a set designer who is from Calgary but is currently going to school in Toronto. But he um, he was a part of the the cast of the first two shows that I directed for Storybook, but now he's become really interested in in theatrical design, uh, and so he's designing this show and, and has done an amazing job. So. It's a team from across the country that's come together to, to put this uh, show together. 
And what's involved in building the set? Uh, the set is um, sort of a, it's inspired by kind of a shipwreck. Uh, a lot of the, the play takes place uh, on the high seas. And um, and so, yeah, so, it, you know, this past weekend, there were over 60 uh, volunteers who, who came together to sort of uh, bring together all of these pieces that have been built based on the design. Um, and, and now it stands tall in the theater and it looks uh, incredible. And I think it's going to be a, a really wonderful play, playground for the play to take place on. And so tell me about the location of the theater. It's in a residential neighborhood. Yeah, it's in it's up in uh, Beddington. Um, so Storybook Theater is in the old Beddington uh, Community Center um, up on Bermuda Drive in the northwest. Uh, um, and uh, you know, I think it's one of the great things about Storybook is the fact that it's it's a theater that doesn't necessarily um, require you to go downtown to, to see it. You know, a lot of the theaters are are concentrated in downtown, but especially for folks who who live up in the north, you know, if you go home at the end of a day of work and, and you want to bring your family to a show. You don't necessarily have to trek all the way back downtown to um, to see it. So, uh, yeah, and it's you know it's um, it's a very residential area, and so it's it's really easy for a lot of folks to attend. But even for folks who take much longer trips to get there, it's, it's definitely worth the trek as well. And so the this interview will be broadcasted on February twenty seventh, which is the end of the month. What does it take to keep the momentum of the show going, with the show starting at the beginning of February and going to March eleventh? I mean, everything we do, we, we do for the audience, right? And so, uh, you know, rehearsals are, are really where sometimes it can be um, very uh, repetitive work without the, the payoff. But as soon as you get an audience in that space and, and as soon as they share their energy with you, as soon as they start to laugh at the jokes, uh, that's what really creates the, the energy and the vibrancy and, and makes it worth doing, makes it so exciting to perform. And so I have no doubt that, uh, that throughout the run, uh, you know, every audience experience will be a little bit different. Um, but they're going to provide the energy, they're going to provide the experience, and, and, and the actors will really sort of feed off of that to uh, to, to continue to have a great run. Uh, after so long being in the theater business, uh, what keeps you excited for new productions? I, you know, I think I, I love a challenge, and, and Peter and the Starcatcher is kind of a beautiful uh, theatrical challenge. It's, it's very, um, very actor-driven storytelling, so we use uh, a, a number of elements um, couple of crates and some uh, some lengths of rope and, and sort of some a few different tools to create a lot of different scenes and so it's very playful um, but it's all sort of run by the actors and so part of the challenge and, and the excitement of it is figuring out how we use these elements to create different scenes to give a sense of different places um, that the story takes place in uh, but um, so yeah so it's, it's it can be challenging at times but it's also really fun and really exciting um, when it works and then it's a lot of fun to watch it happen as well for an audience. And I guess uh, um, there have been many um, Peter Pan retellings over the years. So what makes this exciting work to work on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's um, I think for, for people who are fans of Peter Pan, it's um, there's a lot of little sort of uh, nuggets, a lot of little Easter eggs for them to, to latch onto. But really it's, you know, it's, um, it's a story about a boy and a girl who go on uh, a, a great adventure and, and battle pirates, and um, you know, but but also are 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 experiencing affection for the first time, and, and you know, kind of going through some life lessons in, in the process as well. And so, 
it, you know, in a way, it's not a retelling of Peter Pan, even though it does share some of the characters. It's its own story and its own adventure, but it's, um, you know, it really connects on, on kind of a human level as well, um, in a way that uh, it's not just about how are they going to redo this scene. It's actually a, a totally different adventure with a totally different set of challenges and opportunities. And tell me about the music that goes along with the script. Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting uh, show. It's it's not a musical per se, but but there there is a lot of music, and there are, are a number of songs in it as well. So it's it's kind of a, a neat little hybrid of um, of music and theater, where uh, you know there's some a couple of sort of sea shanty type songs. There's a there's a big musical uh, number that ends Act One, um, uh, and it really kind of. Uh, lends to the style, lends to the the feeling and the the ambiance of the of the show as a whole. So it's it's kind of a a nice combo. If you you know whether you like musicals or not, uh, you'll you'll definitely like the the balance of, of the music and the and the theater within this show. And what is the dynamic of the crew and cast members with uh, um, newcomers as well as more experienced members? I think that's the beautiful thing about storybook theater. It's you know it's really um, the reason that storybook exists is to sort of uh, bridge that gap of experience and, and welcome people who are brand new to doing theater, um, while also bringing in people who have some experience and can share that and can and can help to sort of teach what that what that experience can be like and how rewarding it can be to to come together as a as a group of people and put on a, a theater show. And so, um, you know, we we certainly have some more experienced. Uh, cast members in the show and, and the way that they've supported the, the younger folks and the newer folks has been really lovely to see. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Simon, for your time today. Anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Uh, no, I'd, I'd encourage people to come and check out uh, Peter and the Starcatcher. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a great experience. And it's, you know, anyone 12 and up, uh, I think, is the age advisory on it. So it is a thing that you can bring your kids to. And the adults will get every bit as much out of the show, if not more, than the kids. Uh, it's a, a, a very clever show with a lot of clever uh, word play and things in, in the script as well. That's uh, that's a lot of fun for adults to watch, while also being a lot of fun for kids. Okay, thank you again, Simon, for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, we'll see you again sometime. Yeah. Sounds great. Bye. Bye. That was my interview with Simon Mallet, director of the play Peter and the Starcatcher at Storybook Theater. The play runs from February 10th to March 11th. By the time you hear this, there will be two weeks to catch the play. For my piece on ArtsLink this month, we'll be speaking with Rory Corey. He's the senior curator at the Military Museums, and we'll be talking about MuseumCon, promoting thinking skills and historical study with strategy games. On March 4th, that's a Saturday, at 10 a.m., and March 5th, Sunday, at 10 a.m. as well, you'll be able to go to the Military Museums at 4520 Crowchild Trail, Southwest Calgary, Alberta, and be playing free all these strategy games that we're going to be talking about here. Now, if you've never dipped your toes into any of this, or you've maybe just played uh, you know, as far as maybe risk in terms of your strategic board games, this should be an interesting interview. Um, I did not know much about this stuff myself, and so won't you join me as I pick Rory's brain about MuseumCon? Well, here on ArtsLink today, we're pleased to be speaking with Rory Corey of the Military Museum. How are you doing, Rory? I'm good. How are you doing, Nathan? Doing very well. Now, uh, we haven't had you on the air for a little while, and uh, we're here to bring you up on uh, in front of the mics to talk about MuseumCon, which is happening on Saturday, March 4th, and uh, Sunday, March 5th, uh, starting at 10 a.m. at the Military Museums. So what is this? 
It's a war games tournament that we've been running at the museum for, oh, probably the last 15 years or so. So it's uh, basically based on board games. So um, if you played Risk, it's a little bit more advanced version of that uh, with a few more rules and uh, a little more what we call chrome in the war games industry and uh, a little bit more complexity than that. One of the things that's really interesting about the military museums and you being involved in this is the amount of um, uh, infrastructure that you have. Your museum uh, con poster lists dozens of games. Right, yeah, like, and um, some of the people that have been involved with Museum Con have been involved with it for, you know, a good 20, 25 years. So um, there's a lot of us who have a wide range of experience with a wide range of games, and each of us will bring, you know, a bundle, a couple of boxes full of games, uh, and, you know, whoever's interested in playing a particular game will get it on the table. So there's a lot of expertise that's uh, going to be coming to the games tournament too. Well, keeping that in mind, let's start sort of at the the base level of what most people, I'm assuming, knowledge of war games would be. So starting with Risk. So this, most everyone knows, uh, if they played it, is is a dice-based game of of world conquest. Um, And so things get exponentially more complex, but also with the possibility of exponentially more fun after that. So do you want to maybe give us the next step up from Risk and what people can expect, you know, to to go in there, maybe pursuing something, just one level up? Right, yeah. Um, so risk and access and allies, um, what we in the industry would call our bucket of dice games. So you have a whole handful of dice, roll them, and it's very luck-based. So uh, level up from that would be uh, not great complexity, um, but less luck-based. So there's games like Diplomacy, Machiavelli, and Hannibal. Um, in particular, uh, there's a genre of games based around the game Hannibal that are called card-driven games. So um, you get a deck of cards, each player gets a deck of cards, and based on the cards you draw, um, you can do a certain number of things with each card. Um, you can run a campaign, or you can recruit troops, you can fight a battle, that sort of thing, and it's, it's up to you what you do with that particular card. Um, but there's you know um, a few more pieces, a few more varieties of pieces, that sort of thing than you would get with a game like Risk, for instance, and there's special events. Um, Diplomacy and Machiavelli, those types of games, they don't involve dice at all, so there's no luck. Um, It's uh, purely you're writing down your orders, your opponent is writing down their orders, and they happen simultaneously, and then you see if those orders actually go through. Um, Because, you know, one of the things in military history, you know, as you're making plans, your enemy's also making plans. So um, one of the maxims is uh, no no, uh, plan survives first contact with the enemy. So it adds a lot more interest to it that way. And one of the other aspects of interest is people picking particular times of, uh, of in history or locations to do these games in. So uh, when you get above just the dice rolling for mechanics, then your specific interest in, in niche battles comes in. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities uh, throughout all of the world and history for people to play in, in different campaigns. Um, not wanting to get too ahead of ourselves, could you, you know, sort of give us a variety of the different campaigns and scenarios that people would have available to get sort of uh, uh, dip their toes into? 
Right. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll have everything from ancient uh, classical era all the way up to uh, the Cold War and everything from strat strategic down to the tactical level. So a tactical level would be just fighting a single battle, um, like the Battle of Waterloo, let's say, uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so there's Napoleon's Last Battles is a good one. That's actually a good entry-level one as well that only takes maybe a couple hours. It's pretty simple. There's not too many pieces. Um, all the way on up to, you know, strategic-level games like uh, Soldier Kings is one of the ones that I'm going to be running at the tournament, actually. That's going to be happening all day day on the Saturday. Um, that's about the Seven Years' War, which arguably was the first world war because it happened on um, most continents. And uh, it was during the 18th century and the uh, 1750s, 1760s kind of thing. Uh, that's a little more complex um, because you have like economics involved. Uh, you have to buy your pieces. You have manpower production and that sort of thing that you have to keep in mind. So uh, you add more and more complexity, particularly for the strategic level games. So you said you're going to be working that game all day. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the longer games that we have. Some of the games um, would actually take the entire weekend. Um, for instance, Here I Stand or Virgin Queen. Those are in the uh, 16th century um, and uh, they're grand strategic level as well. So all of Europe kind of thing. Um, so yeah, if you want something to last the whole weekend, those are available as well. So you're talking about a game that begins on the Saturday and will continue one single game throughout the weekend. That's right. And yeah, for, for some of the war games that uh, some of us play, those are actually shorter. I actually played one in my basement that I was playing for 10 years. It was the same game, same campaign. So, yeah. Well, just to remind folks, uh, Museum Con is taking place at the Military Museums. That's just off Glenmore Trail and... Crowchild Trail, Saturday, March 4th and uh, March 5th, starting at 10 a.m. So if they want to get involved in Rory's game, better show up early. That's right. <laughs> but there'll be drop-in games available throughout the weekend. So if you just want to pick up a couple of hours of History of the World, for instance, or, uh, yeah, Risk, um, those, those will be available as well. Um, if you want something mid-range, I might suggest something like Hannibal. It's, a, again, a good entry-level uh, game and it's a very popular card-driven game. The best game that I played of any game ever was a game of Hannibal. It came down to the last card play of the last turn and the last battle and that's how close it was the, that that's what we really like is games that are that close to, to determining who's the winner so there's some real satisfaction to be found in this no no doubts about it oh yeah there's some nail-biting moments and yeah you're on the edge of your seat and it, it can get pretty intense I mean you know everybody there at the tournament is all above board and everything so there's everybody behaves themselves pretty well um but to get into a little bit of specifics about these games, when I was doing uh, just a little bit of research about how they work, um, I was kind of curious about how uh, something like, say, the fog of war mechanic works in, say, an ancient game compared to one where people, you know, are able to use like radios and real-time communication. Can you tell us about how different games deal with that aspect of fog of war? And can you maybe just give us an explanation of what that is? Right. So... Machiavelli would be a good example of how uh, one game in, in the earlier period deals with that. So Machiavelli represents the 15th century in Italy. And um, so like diplomacy, you write down orders. So this army moves to this location or um, this fleet transports this army to this location, that kind of thing. And you write down orders for all your units but you don't know what orders the other guy is writing down. So he could be writing the exact same orders to go to the exact same place 
and then you just end up bouncing both from the same spot, unless you have more units than the other guy going to the same spot, but you have no idea. Well, you have a guess maybe what the enemy might be doing, but you don't know for sure what the enemy is going to be doing. So that's that's a good way of dealing with fog of war there. Um, for uh, some of the later games, um, you know, um, a lot of the war games that we deal with are you move, I move. So I do all of my moves and then all of my combats and then you do all of your moves and all of your combats. So there's there's not a lot of fog of war there. Um, but um, you can get into games where you have this cup and you draw from it which unit is going to be able to move, so which division might be able to move, and you never know if you're going to have like three of your divisions move before the enemy's going to be able to move, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes uh, you're dealing with games like Hammer of the Scots, for instance, which are double blind, we call it. Uh, so they're block games. Um, so you have a series of blocks that are stood up on edge and you can't see um, what the combat values are for the other guy's units. You, you only see yours. You can see that the other guy has units over there, but you don't know how powerful they are. So you might be attacking a five-point unit or a one-point unit. You don't know. Um, and finally, I wanted to ask, what about the Cold War? How does, how does that work in wargaming? Because there's no outright open battlefields, right? Right. So Twilight Struggle is probably one of the most popular ones there. So um, it's one of those card-driven games that I was talking about. Um, so there's a lot of special events for, um, you know, a particular president will come to power and, you know, he'll have an effect on things or... Um, you know, there'll be rebellions somewhere um, and that sort of thing. So um, you'll get a certain number of points for getting influence in certain areas and political influence in certain areas and that sort of thing and um, trying not to get to nuclear war and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it's not... Some of the games aren't necessarily about direct conflict but uh, political conflict. So there, there's others along those lines, like there's Origins of the Second World War, for instance, where it's political maneuvering. Um, there's, there's other games similar to that as well. We're speaking with Rory Corey of the Military Museums. Museum Con, which we've been speaking of, uh, go, runs from Saturday, March 4th to Sunday, March 5th, starting at 10 a.m. Well, Rory, um, could you maybe give us a little bit of an idea of those mid-range games and the amount of time that it takes for someone that wants to get a little bit above risk. But uh, I'm thinking, of course, of, of Milton Bradley's Axes and Allies. Is it still Milton Bradley's? I think so. Uh, I'd have to double check that. But yeah, like the Axis and Allies has expanded much beyond the original now. So there's Axis and Allies 1940. Uh, there's Axis and Allies Pacific. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of different games that, uh, so like, you know, you can get deep into the D-Day campaign if you want to zoom into that. Uh, Axis and Allies 1940 introduces a lot of different units and um, it's uh, more detailed, like there's more spaces than the standard Axis and Allies. A lot of people find that the standard Axis and Allies uh, is sort of scripted, so you have to do a series of moves if, if you want to have a chance of winning the game. But 
the other uh, later versions of Axis and Allies aren't as scripted, um, which uh, I like a lot more variety in my games. But but Axis and Allies is yeah, it's it's a really good um, in entry level game. You know, if you've played Risk, it's it's um, similar to that kind of a concept. A lot of dice rolling, um, a lot of uh, moving large batches of units around the board. Um, uh, not super historical, but I mean, it gives you a sense of uh, what was happening at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, it gives you an introduction to um, air units, naval units, um, land units, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, the mechanics are pretty easy. I mean, you just basically move a large group of guys into a space and roll off against the other guy's large group of units. And if you have um, 15 units, you get 15 dice that you can roll against the other guy's 15 dice. So that's why we call them bucket of dice games. I see. Now, actually, the way you're putting it uh, makes me more interested in the games that you're mentioning earlier as the next steps, like History of the World. That was one that you mentioned, yeah? History of the World is a good one, too. Um, I mean, I like it because it actually is, there's a lot of learning that's involved there. So um, it introduces a lot of the early cultures that uh, had an impact, the early empires that had an impact on um, mostly the old world, but uh, there, there, you do get into a little bit of the uh, the civilizations in the new world as well. But um, you get to play each of those empires and try and do as well as you can for that particular empire, and then it uh, moves on to the next era, and you have a new empire that you can deal with, and so on through the ages, and you just try and do the best you can with each of your empires, and then the collective score of all of your empires gets tallied up, and um, you see how well you did against the other batches of empires that the other players have. To be honest, that sounds quite a lot more interesting. Yeah, it, it's 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 pretty neat. Like I, I like games that um, that are educational as well as entertaining, right? Where you learn something about the particular campaign or the particular battle or world history. So um, rather than just you know luck based, where you don't learn a lot about them. So is there any particular other games that you'd like people to be aware of if they're thinking about coming over to Museum Con that you haven't already mentioned? Um, I, well, I, I did uh, talk briefly about uh, Here I Stand and Virgin Queen. Um, those are some of the more complex games that would take like either all day, one day, or the whole weekend. Um, but they're very popular. Um, Napoleonic Wars is another one that's very popular that would probably take most of the day. Um, but uh, those, are, those are all card-driven games. Card-driven games tend to be very popular these days. Um, and like I say, Hannibal was the, uh, the game that started that genre off. Um, it was just, it worked so well in terms of, you know, you draw a card and you're agonizing over the decisions. What do I do with this card? Do I raise troops? Do I move units? Uh, do I use it as the special event, you know? And, um, all of the other card driven games have the, a similar concept with their cards as well. And it's just, you're, you're, you're nail biting. What should I do with these cards? And what are the other guys going to do with their cards? And Yeah. Would you suggest people coming in groups of their own sort of buddies so they can maybe do tag teaming? It sounds like this could be uh, as grueling 
<laughs> as exciting possibly. It, it would definitely help if you come with uh, people that you know, because then you you know you're for sure going to um, be able to to pick up a game with some people. Um, but you know, th- there'll be people dropping in and out of games throughout the weekend. Um, you know, we're not hundred percent hundred percent certain how long each of the games will take to finish off. Um, some people may play them to completion. Some people may play them just to a point where you know it's clear who the winner is going to be, and then they wrap up the game and then move on to the next one. Um, but we'll try and have like you know shorter pickup games like History of the World and Risk Twenty Two Ten available for people just to sit down and pick up. And um, a few of us should be available to uh, to help teach the basic mechanics of each of those games as well. So. Uh, uh, you don't necessarily have to bring your own games. It, it would certainly be helpful if you have a particular game that you want to play and you haven't had enough players to play. Um, it's a good place to, you know, collect a full board of players because some some boards, you know, take up to seven players kind of thing. And um, these days, particularly in the COVID world, it's uh, it's difficult to collect seven players. So, um, you know, if, if you want an easy hit where you're going to have a, a, a larger group, you know, it's a good place to, to collect people. Well, that's about all the questions I have. Uh, thanks for coming down, Roy. I really appreciate it today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nathan. Always a pleasure. That was my conversation with Rory Corey, Senior Curator at the Military Museums. MuseumCon will be running from Saturday, March 4th to Sunday, March 5th. They both start at 10 a.m., but Saturday is running late until 11 p.m. If you show up on Sunday, you'll have until about 4 o'clock to be playing all these games that we spoke of. If you visit the ArtsLink section of the CGSW website, you'll find the Meetup web uh, portion that we'll be putting up there so you can see all the details at a glance. That's it for ArtsLink this month. Talk to you again next time.